The Craig Fawley Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Lynette's Shrimp House, located in Highland Park. It's Metro Detroit's premier destination, serving juicy fried shrimp, fish, and wings, alongside soul food sides and new additions to the menu, like turkey tacos and desserts. Located at 13548 Woodward in Highland Park, just north of the Davison, Lynette's is open for takeaway, noon to 8, Tuesday and Thursday, noon to 10 p.m., Friday and Saturday, and noon to 5 p.m. on Sunday. Call now, get some Lynette's. Hey, greetings, everybody. Welcome to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Glad to have you with me on this Monday. And an important conversation on tap today, something that I think uh, we need to get into. Uh, Wayne State University's Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health Sciences is teaming up with the state of Michigan to develop a new comprehensive behavioral and mental health training and support program for the state's first responders and, of course, their families as well to address the stress that they face and their duties protecting residents here in the state. The program is called Frontline Strong Together, and it's going to be available electronically and in person to first responders and their families in nearly all of Michigan's 83 counties this year. So it's a pretty big deal that this is going on. And uh, I want to dig into this, obviously, with my guest today. Uh, one of the people responsible for the program is Dr. Ali Amir Saudri. He's an associate professor of uh, psychiatry and behavioral neurosciences at Wayne State University. He joins us right now. Welcome to the program, sir. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you, sir. Well, let's first of all talk about the need for a program like this, uh, because, you know, there have been a lot of discussions about things like PTSD for returning soldiers, but we don't necessarily lump first responders into that same category as dealing with the same types of stressors that we might see there. But I'm suggesting that maybe, and you could tell me if I'm wrong, but there's likely a lot of similarities there. First of all, thank you for having us to discuss this issue because it is so important. You know, uh, first responders and particularly police go through so much cumulative trauma. By cumulative, I mean that anything that they do during the day may have an impact on their functioning and they're not gonna go away, they will stay. So their stress hormones and all the circuitry which creates physiological effects in their body stays. So they are always on the state of high alert because of the job requirement. The easiest example that I can give you is that just imagine a police officer approaching a car because let's say they passed the red light. If we put ourselves in the shoes of the police officer, they know nothing about the individual. They don't know what they are going to face. They don't know what is going to happen. So everything is going to be based on guesses. Just this incident on its own will get your neurotransmitters and hormones, the stress hormones up. So before they approach this individual, they are already hyper-alerted. The system says danger. Depending on what happens and how it goes with the other individual again, this is high. Now imagine that this police officer is a father or newlywed and they are approaching this car and you can find what type of thoughts they are going to have in their mind on its own that is very stressful in addition to what they go through personally sure so as you can see this issue is 
something which the body says you're in danger. And each single interaction that they have with another person, the body says you're in danger. Although it may not be any danger, but that's how the body perceives it. So the question that you have, is there any similarities? It is a whole other similarities. However, the soldier goes to the war, then something happens, stresses are lower or down. The police officer, as long as he or she stays a job, the stress hormones are high and they, they, they stay high. So you can see the permanent effect of these uh, levels well, of high stress well, can well, come cumulative effect. Well, and, and let's talk about that cumulative effect. I mean, what do we know from the research as to how that stress will manifest itself when they're not on the job? Um, I mean, I, I assume higher levels of depression. We've seen uh, potential for domestic violence and things like that with, with people that are under constant stressors. Is this typically what we see? Typically what we see is exactly what you mentioned. And people will start having thoughts about self-medicating and they will self-medicate. So they may use excessive amount of alcohol. They may go to not prescribed controlled pain medications just to be able to function. Of course, I have to say, this is not something which happens with, with every frontline individual, but it's common that happens. And because of these effects, it is that we have such a high rate of suicide in particularly police officers. Now, the issue is that it is not only depression, it is also worries and anxiety with it. It is not only anxiety, it is PTSD, as you mentioned. Now, the individual or the body does not read books to say, I meet this criteria or that the other criteria. Body has its own way of letting me, us know what happens within me. So you can have a spectrum of symptoms, which all of them are going to be bothersome. I remember I had a police officer, just to give you how difficult it can be, who became psychotic. And the reason was that he, has a, he had a child who was, at the time, two or three years old. He was married. He started self-medicating. But finally, after probably a couple months, with reluctance, what he saw was a baby in a microwave. You just imagine this individual, how else he could cope with but becoming psychotic and starting to drink alcohol. Wow. So this is just one example. So our frontline workers go through so much pain and trauma, but we have a tendency as a society and as human beings in general to look at people from one dimension. The police officer, the frontline worker, firefighter, and we put a label on it. We forgot that these are people who have human sides, human needs, are not living in a vacuum. They are within a community, society, family, and anything they go through impacts that family and that community. 
Well, you know, when, when you take a look at this, I mean, this is also a population where, uh, you know, if you if you're a police officer or a fireman, I mean, there's a certain level of, quote unquote, toughness that goes along with that job. They're supposed to be almost sort of superhuman and, and immune to some of those stresses. I, I think it's been reinforced in every cop show uh, that there's ever been on television, it, it seems. Uh, and, and there has been a reluctance uh, amongst the part of police officers um, to to seek the treatment that they might need to cope with these daily stressors. Uh, overcoming that stigma that goes along with actually seeking help has got to be a big part of the challenge that you're facing. Absolutely. And that's why, in fact, one of our main focuses to create this program is and was that we want to give as much sense of control as possible as much as confidentiality as possible to these individuals that they can access the website. They don't need to give any names, password, nothing. Go through it and learn. The learning will happen in different ways. One is that we have, we are going to have short videos which will explain things. Then we'll have scenarios for example what i mentioned to you about that police officer approaching the car and in there we will have animations which discusses the language we'll walk them through what happens in their lives and then we'll say how they can modify their reaction and behavior if they feel comfortable with this part then they will have other options as well. And the hope is, as they feel more in charge of their own care, in charge of the destiny, understanding that there is no collection of data with their name and others for, for them because of the fear of being labeled as weak, as you mentioned, or not having the promotion that they have been wanting. At that level, we hope that they will ask for treatment. What we do on the website is also treatment, but some people need to go beyond it. And that's what we are going to do and hopefully will succeed. The stigma is so massive nowadays, or has been probably, that 90% or more of individuals who need help do not seek help. That's why we want to make the website a private issue. So hopefully they will feel somewhat more comfortable. With it. Well, and if you're talking about 90% of the people not getting the help that they need, I, I'm assuming that that percentage might be higher, uh, you know, with, with certain professions like police officers, um, yeah. you know, it, it again, that stigma is there. Uh, we want to eliminate that. And it certainly seems as if, you know, could police departments sort of make this type of counseling mandatory in a way that, look, you just got to check in on the website at some point um, and just do it. And, and if it works for you, great. Uh, it certainly seems as if they could really improve a lot of the relations they have with the community if they had people who are out there on a more stable footing on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, the 90% figure that I give you is for, is for the police. Okay. Can they make it mandatory? We have to look at... Uh, the you have to look at what they go through, the, the front lines. And what they go through is lack or loss of control. 
because they go to an environment that they have no control. It's chaotic. And what they try to do is to bring some control and normalcy back. That's the attempt. That's the intention. However, because circumstances are so volatile, most of the time, they cannot bring the control that they want. So imagine now you mandate the person. In other words, you will take control off of her hand or his hand and say, no, you must go. And I can assure you, not only it's not going to work, it's going to backfire. This is something which has to be voluntary, but we have to create an environment of safety and call for them. I'm thinking about the the events of the past year and a half. You know, when you look at at COVID, uh, the impact it's had on on frontline workers in so many ways, and also especially for police. You know, Black Lives Matter and the increased scrutiny on how they do their jobs. Um, and and I'm wondering if that is sort of added to that addition that stress level that already exists, uh, and and whether or not that sort of compounded some of the problems that we've that we've been talking about. Well, you are putting your finger on something which is too complex, and I'm not a social scientist, having said that, there is no doubt that not only Black Lives Matters uh, possibly has provoked some frontline workers, but I cannot say it's general. Secondly, the political environment which was created has had probably a bigger effect than Black Lives Matter uh, on those individuals. And thirdly, depending on the cumulative stress that they were going through before, their personal past experiences with different ethnicities, their own biases, and all that play a role. So we can't say who is going to do what or who's going through what side or what, which uh, illness sure. or symptom. Yeah, and, and I wasn't trying to suggest that Black Lives Matter was responsible for an increase in stress, but, but you know, to the point where maybe it's got officers questioning some of their training, uh, some of their approaches to their job. Um, and it's got them sort of second guessing some of the things that they have been doing throughout their career. Well, second guessing is always not bad. <laughs> True. Second guessing is that they are thinking about some improvement. And that's what I want. I want them to second guess and say, okay, what I know right now is not working out. What can I do differently? What can I do maybe um, separately in a way that, that I can gain the control that I want to have. Remember, many of the police officers, I, I have a lot of interaction with police officers when I was at uh, Detroit Receiving. And one thing that I observed over many years was that they wanted to control the situation. And, you know, it becomes part of their personality. The problem is that they take that personality to their homes and that creates problems in their lives. That create, like, creates relationship problems. There was a wife of a firefighter some time ago and we were talking about things and I asked her, so he had some position. So when he comes home, does he still have the same position? He said more. She said more. He could not differentiate from the role at work and from the work as husband. So you can imagine what happens. No, absolutely. Uh, I should remind folks, my guest right now is Dr. Ali Amr Sadri from the Wayne State University School of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. Uh, we're talking about the program Frontline Strong Together, 
going to be developed with the state of Michigan to uh, give basically therapy services uh, to all 83 counties here in the state of Michigan for frontline workers, firefighters, police officers, EMS drivers. Uh, and, and this is something that, again, it, it seems like this should have been up and running a long time ago. Um, and and uh, I, I'm wondering how much of that is just because we are starting to see some progress when it comes to destigmatizing uh, mental health needs uh, as a society, because this is not something that's limited to, to police, obviously. Um, you know, we'd, we'd rather not talk about mental health issues uh, as a society in general. Well, I can't disagree with you. The stigma has been there for uh, thousands of years. So this is not something which is new. However, depending on circumstances, we want to idealize frontline workers that they are all Batmans when in reality it's not. However, this high standard that we have for them uh, will have one destination and that is failure. So the frontline worker, in order to protect himself or herself, cannot admit that he or she is probably in need of help. And that is my job and many others to let them know that, no, you are a human being and it is normal to feel that way. Uh, one of the components of this that I think, you know, is, is great. Uh, we're utilizing Zoom right now, but there's going to be a telemedicine component to this. Um, that may be easier for a lot of people to access for the first time than actually making an appointment, uh, going to an office somewhere to see somebody. Uh, talk about what can be accomplished when it comes to telemedicine, um, is it possible to, for you as a, as a doctor or, or somebody else who is in the position of treating somebody to get a pretty good idea of, of somebody's needs with that type of consultation as opposed to meeting in person? Well, telemedicine has been something which we have been working with for the past eight, nine years, way before COVID came. And it has shown us things that we could never imagine. You are absolutely right about what you mentioned. People don't have transportation. The weather is in Michigan is not the best weather during winter and hot summers. People are single mothers and they need someone to take care of their kid to come to their appointment, for example. We have so many fragile elderly. We have people who have developmental disabilities. And what I have seen and the most helpful has been when I send someone to their houses, a nurse or a social worker. And I see them not only in their environment, I have extra eyes at the house, which sees what goes on. I have seen the miseries that people go through when they come to the appointment. I don't see those things. So it has opened our eyes. At least three or four individuals have been sent to ER from their house, not because of psychiatric problems, but because of major medical problems that they could not move. So it's, it has saved lives and it's going to save lives. Telemedicine for psychiatry, in, for medicine in general, but particularly for psychiatry because I'm a psychiatrist, is going to be playing a very major role in assisting us to go places that we haven't been able to go. And for those individuals have access to us and receive help, appropriate help, timely help. Well, and, and obviously, you know, uh, the telemedicine part's important from a geographical standpoint. A lot of people live in places, especially police officers, work in rural communities and rural areas of the state that don't have 
uh, you know, there's not a lot of facilities around them. Um, and so it's important to do that. But I do want to talk about this part of this too, as, as we get close to, to wrapping this up. But one of the big parts of this is going to be, uh, a, you know, a peer project here, uh, training and support from peers. Uh, and it seems that just having somebody to talk to, if they've got a little bit of knowledge about what their friends may be going through, their coworkers may be going through, somebody that might be able to help them navigate this system is going to be a huge component of the success of this. Uh, how is that going to work? And, and what kinds of people are you looking for for this peer support program? You know, peers are so important in this because they have been through it. They know the language. There is an element of trust already in there. So what we need to do or what we are going to do is to put them into our own training that we have established. It is called compassionate care training. We have done it in emergency rooms. We have done it in group homes. And it has helped in both situations. We have modified it for peers. So they will learn the biology behind what we do. And then they understand the psychology of it. And then we will mentor them, coach them as they have interaction with someone who's role-playing with them. And we correct them. And this happens many, many times until they get it. Because every individual has patterns or habits of thinking, patterns of emotional reaction, patterns of behavior. So if we modify their existing patterns and give them more weapons, more skills, in other words, then they will be able to be more effective and provide the support that they need to provide to those in need. We don't expect them to render any therapy. We expect them to be there, understand them, provide the support. And maybe, you know, recognize when there are changes in behavior or reaction, changes in that pattern uh, to alert them that maybe there's some need for intervention. Absolutely. Well, one last question for you, doctor, uh, and, and I appreciate your time today. Uh, how do you gauge success for something like this? Because, you know, mental health is one of those things that's it's tough to gauge sometimes uh, whether or not you've really broken through with somebody or if they've uh, adjusted their behavior the right way. Uh, how are you going to determine whether or not this is working and it's something that should continue? Yes, we have had uh, several grants, in fact, to show the efficacy of, uh, for example, telemedicine. And we can quantify these successes and then publish it, make it, in fact, best practices. So it is quanti quantifiable. This particular program is multidimensional. And with each dimension of it, we screen people for whatever they go through. We know how many times, for example, what part of a website has been accessed that we can improve or add more to it, what parts have not, and probably we have to remove. So we will have data, but we don't have personal information, which we don't need. That data will tell us how we can improve the system and how people can be engaged better and more in it. Well, I'd like to thank you for being here. Again, my guest has been Dr. Ali Amr Sadri, Associate Professor of, Wayne, of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at Wayne State University. Uh, the program 
uh, and people, if they want information about this, it's called the Frontline Strong Together Program. Again, it is going to be available electronically and in person to first responders and their families in nearly all of Michigan's 83 counties this year. Where can they go to get information about this? Frontline Strong Together. We had a uh, uh, website before, which we established during COVID in the beginning, called the uh, Warriors Strong Together. That was for people who were in in, in healthcare. Sure. And uh, we received many, many calls, and we provided some of what I discussed with you, Frontline. Frontline is an extended and expanded part of the program. It is a, as I mentioned, multi-layered one. That one was a little bit more limited, uh, and we didn't have uh, states... Uh, assistance in it, but we, we were obligated to provide something for people. So if they go to uh, Warrior Strong Together, it will give people the opportunity to go to another website, which, which is Frontline Together. All right. This is the beginning of it. It's not the end of it. So it, we are building it up. Well, we will provide, I will provide a link, of course, to this, uh, to the original site in, in my post that I put up with this a little bit later on today so people can access it if they need to. Uh, Dr. Amir Sadri, we really appreciate your time and, uh, you know, we'd love to see some great success with this. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting us. Dr. Ali Amir Sadri is an associate professor of psychiatry and behavioral neurosciences at Wayne State University. Again, that program is called Frontline Strong Together. Thanks for listening to the program today. I really do appreciate it. These are the types of conversations I like to have on this program, and I hope you enjoy them as well. Uh, you can send me an email suggesting some things that maybe I should get into. Again, the email is Show at gmail.com. Again, Show at gmail.com. You can find me on just about all the social media platforms other than TikTok. I have not found a way yet to work my way into TikTok. I, I just can't get myself there, but uh, hey, that's okay. Send me a message. Let me know what you think. I always do appreciate it. And again, if you like this program, subscribe to it, share it, tell your friends. We'd like to grow the audience as much as possible, and that is happening. It's a good thing, um, but we'd like to, yeah, let's get as many people going here as we can. I always appreciate that. We'll have more stuff coming up this week. I promise you that. And of course, on Fridays, it is the week that was on Deadline Detroit. I always have fun with that program as well. If you didn't catch last week's, it was great. Uh, Susan Demas and Joe DeSana were our guests, and um, we had a good time. There was a lot of stuff to talk about last week, and we always have our nominees for Schmuck of the Week, which is fun. Send me your nominees via email or on social media. I certainly appreciate getting your thoughts on who should be included in that list each and every week. It's fun. All right. Have a great day, everybody. We'll be back soon. And uh, again, tell your friends about us. I appreciate it very much. In the meantime, enjoy this weather. It's going to be a gorgeous few days here in Detroit. Take advantage. See you soon. Looking for the latest news and information about our great city of Detroit? Head to DeadlineDetroit.com for one-stop shopping for the most important stories of the day. Deadline Detroit has some of the best journalists in town, providing original reporting, videos, and podcasts that keep you in the know about everything happening in Detroit. Become a member today, and you'll automatically be entered into a drawing for prizes, including gift cards to some of Detroit's best restaurants. Go to DeadlineDetroit.com membership.